Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. I want you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. A couple weeks ago, we started our series in this very often neglected and obscure minor prophet at the back of the Old Testament. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, God in His infinite wisdom created what we call the table of contents. And uh, you can look in the front of your Bible and there will be a table of contents under the heading Old Testament. You will find that great name Habakkuk. If uh, one of our ladies is pregnant right now, it would really excite your pastor to name your son Habakkuk, okay? And if you don't like Habakkuk, you could go with the name Habby or Hab. We'll be okay with that, all right? It would be a great, strong name that we could uh, remember our time in this uh, great book. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Grab the Pew Bible in the Pew Rack in front of you, and uh, you can follow along uh, in our series as we continue. And you can find that passage on page 785 this morning. But like I said uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we started this series looking at uh, this lamenting prophet. This prophet who was living during a time and a day where the world that he knew, his country, his people, uh, the people of faith around him were really struggling. They were struggling to understand and know God's place in their life. They had turned away from worshiping God and following the God of the great patriarchs of their faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had neglected and, and lost sight of the worship of God that they had done only 200 years prior under the great King David and King Solomon. And during that time, the nation of Israel had been split up into two kingdoms. In essence, there had been a civil war that had broken out. And and instead of fighting one another uh, perpetually, they just decided that ten of the northern tribes uh, would take the northern part of Israel, and they would remain the nation of Israel. And then there were two southern tribes that would split off and would be called the nation of Judah. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on how you say it, Uh, is prophesying, is a prophet to those two southern tribes of Judah. And he's speaking again about two centuries after the unified nation of Israel broke apart uh, right after the reign of uh, King Solomon. During that time, the nation of Israel, the ten northern kingdoms, they fell apart quickly. Uh, They turned to the gods of their neighbors very, very quickly, and they had bad king upon bad king upon bad king. The nation of Judah, on the other hand, had had some good times and some bad times. Kind of like here in America, right? We have some good years and we have some bad years. And depending on maybe who's in leadership or the climate of the political um, center of of our uh, country in Washington, uh, things sometimes are good and sometimes they're not so good. And, And during the time of Habakkuk, he had experienced some good times, but they were very, very short lived. In fact, the majority of the time, of Judah's existence was under difficult or harsh or or godless kings. And as a result of this up and down, uh, Habakkuk was really worried about where God was at. As a remnant, a faithful remnant of following after God, uh, Habakkuk asked the question, God, how long are you going to allow the people of God to disobey? How long are you going to allow treachery and destruction to rule the day? How long are you going to allow sin to go unpunished? We learned a couple weeks ago that that's a cry many of us as Christians pray. 
as we see the evil uh, mounting up against us, where we see that the good and the holy people of our world are marginalized and knocked down and the evil seemingly prosper day after day. And we began to understand and know the heart of this prophet as he cries out to the Lord. And what I want to do this morning, because we've taken a couple weeks off from this beginning part of our series, and because I know a lot of you have been in and out, if you were here two weeks ago, you're going to hear a little bit of the same uh, message that uh, I shared before, because we want to get everybody on the same page, and then we want to slingshot into verses 5 through 11. And so my first point is going to focus back in on what we learned in verses 1 through 4, a reminder of what's going on in the days of Habakkuk and in our day today, and then God's seeming answer to the prayer that Habakkuk has been praying for. So let's look to the scriptures this morning. Habakkuk chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 1 for the sake of context this morning. And we'll go through verse 11. And it can be broken down this way. Verses 1 through 4 is Habakkuk's petition or his complaint or his crying out to his God. And verses 5 through 11 is God's response to the prophet. Let's listen to what he has to say from his word this morning. The oracle or the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and the justice and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The Lord's answer in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and nasty, or hasty nation, maybe they were nasty as well, who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You and I openly admit how hard a passage like this is to understand. God, You seemingly seem to relish and rejoice in the fact that You use evil and sinful man to bring about Your purposes and plans. Lord, I don't know 
how or why a good God can do that. I don't know, God, how you can use evil and harsh things to accomplish the good you promise for your people. But Lord, I pray for myself and for my congregation that we would say you do all things well. And that we would bow down and worship the fact that you are a God that is in control not only of the good things, but the evil things as well. God, not only are you the ruler and king of those who follow and obey you, but you are the ruler and king of those who seemingly seek to rebel against you. God, you're not just the king and ruler of the remnant, the faithful remnant of Judah, but you are the king and the ruler of the great Chaldeans. Lord, let us be reminded of that as we recognize and know our place that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords in our hearts, the faithful remnant, your people. And yet, Lord, we would even acknowledge, as Gary and Jamie have reminded us this morning, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords of even the leaders of ISIS. And that you allow and you uh, permit and you uh, give uh, allowance for their acts of heinousness to take place for your good and for your glory. We don't understand it, and yet we bow in submission to it, knowing that, again, you do all things well, and you will right every wrong, and you will bring everything to a faithful and glorious end when we stand before you in glory. To you be all the glory, honor, and praise this morning as we learn to respond in light of the God who you are, with worship and adoration. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A man went to the doctor's office because he wasn't feeling right, and the doctor had a set of tests done. And after the tests were done, the doctor called him back into the office and said, I've got the results from your test, and from the results I can tell you I've got good news, and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? The man, being an optimist, said, give me the good news. That will allow the bad news to go down a little easier. He was amazed to hear what the good news was. The doctor said, well, the good news is you've got 24 hours to live. Of which the man gasped, my goodness, if that's the good news, what in the world could possibly be the bad news? Of which the doctor said, I forgot to tell you it yesterday. Some of you don't get that. And maybe in the parking lot you will. But have you ever been a part of that good news, bad news bit? I, I remember one time uh, for a test, I got my test back in high school with a big F in red. Bold lettering, F. And then there was a little note. And I was thinking, what in the world is my teacher going to say to me? And the teacher wrote in there, and I wish I would have taken a picture. It would have been a great illustration this morning. It says, you obviously studied for the test. And then dot, 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 but I assume it was the wrong test. Good news, bad news. In high school, I heard this bit used on one of my friends. He was dating a girl, and it was Valentine's Day. And he had all this elaborate stuff to show his love and affection. 
And after he had uh, played a a mixtape, which anybody under the age of 35 has no idea what I'm talking about, and after he had given her flowers and candies and, and, and shared his affection with her, she says, listen, I've got good news and I've got bad news. This true story. Please, teenage girls, don't do this to guys. It's heartbreaking. She says, I'm in love, of which he got all excited. She said, the bad news is it's with someone else. Oh, man, cold as ice. Good news, bad news. If, if you've been a part of that, and I've heard good news, bad news from mechanics... It's always bad news. All right? You know, they'll say, I got good news, bad news. And your response is, well, give me the good news. I changed the oil in your car. Well, that's great. What's the bad news? The transmission doesn't work anymore. You know, we hear it with doctors. I've got good news and bad news. And it's usually all bad news. We hear it from dentists. We hear it from teachers. We hear it from employees or employers. And what I've come to learn... <clears throat> is that usually when someone uses that bit with you, they're going to give you two pieces of bad news. They're just degrees of difference with regards to bad. So it goes from bad to worse. Now why would I bring that up as a lead into our message this morning? The reason why is because God is in essence going to say, Habakkuk, the people of Judah, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And in many ways, both sets of news are bad. Now for some of you this morning, you're wondering, where in the world does this book and this place go? You know, when we approach the Scriptures, we want to make sure that people recognize this stuff doesn't come out of thin air. This is human history. This is finding its place in a time and in an age just like we were living in. A moment in time. I want you to notice, just for your sake and and all of ours, Uh, The Old Testament timeline. On the screen you will see, of course, it starts with creation. And then we've got the call of Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 10 through 15. We see the period of the patriarchs, which is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph would be in that time. We studied him not too long ago. And then we've got the time of Moses and the Exodus. They leave the nation of Egypt, head out into the wilderness for 40 years. The book of Joshua begins, and so right at the entrance of Canaan, back to creation is your first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then we've got Joshua. And what we see is in the land, or the time of Joshua, the nation of Israel conquers the land that God had promised for them. By the time Joshua is done, the conquest has taken over, and they're living during a time... Uh, in the promised land that God had promised, but without a king. God is their king. And during that time, a period of judges, rulers, for temporary points of time, would take over leading uh, the nation. People like Samson and Deborah and and others uh, would do that during that time. But then uh, at the end of the period of the judges, the nation of Israel says, hey, we want a ruler. We want to be like all the other countries. You know, they've got kings and they've got these vast armies that are led by their kings. And we want a king. And, and at the end of the judges is one of the final judges. And that's Samuel, who's a priest and a prophet as well. And he uh, goes before God and he says, your people don't want to be led by you anymore. They want to be led by a man. And Israel's monarchy begins with the first chosen king of Israel, Saul. This is man's choice. And so God allows man's choice to rule the day for a time. And then during that time of Israel's monarchy, you go from Saul to David to Solomon. 
And after Solomon, the kingdom begins to split apart. Some of the reasons for this is some of the consequences of David's sin when he has that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and some of the family dynamics that are created because of David's sin. Because of that, during that time after those three kings, the nation splits apart. And you have then all of these different books being written. This is where we find Habakkuk during this division. And it's before either of the kingdoms fall to outside invaders. So if you notice at the bottom of the screen, there is Habakkuk. He's one of the prophets who's prophesying. So just fast forward so you know where we're going. By the time Habakkuk is done with his book, he has prophesied that the nations and empires of modern-day Iraq are going to come and invade the people and places of God in Israel and going to take them captive. That happens in the Babylonian exile. In 586 to 515, we see the life of Daniel being lived out. Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are where those stories and history come from. But then as Jeremiah is told that that time in exile is only going to last 70 years, that that, end, or that exile comes to an end and the people of Israel are allowed to leave Iraq and Babylon and head back home. And that's where people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi uh, talk about what it's like to be back in the promised land and in many ways being commanded and called out to return to their first love being God. And then of course the end of the Old Testament takes place about 400 years before Christ comes onto the scene. Now, we just went through 2,000 years of human history. We should just close our time with a word of prayer. But that hopefully puts you where we're at. And so what we begin to see is Habakkuk is looking at his time and his place and he recognizes, I don't like the way the world is going. I'm not altogether happy with what I see. And surely, God, you are not either. And so notice what he does. He starts with a complaint or a, or, or a lament. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But he's concerned about what he sees. And, and God says, listen, I've been hearing your prayers and I'm going to answer your prayers. And notice what he says in verse 5. Look among the nations and see Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You know, those are one of those verses that you put on a coffee mug. That's one of those verses that you put uh, over your mantle, okay? Another great verse that people use and, and take away the total context around it, Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, give you hope and a bright future. And we put that all over the place. We go to houses and they've got it all over the place. And, and so we take Habakkuk 1.5 and we say, isn't that a great verse? God's going to amaze us. God's going to astound us. But never do I see above the fireplace be amazed and astounded because I'm bringing your enemies and they're going to hunt you down. That would be kind of cool over a fireplace. I never see the Monet water portrait that has that verse next to it with an invading Chaldean army with spears in their hands looking ready to take over anybody that stands in their way. Listen, verses are made for the context that they find themselves in. 
And be very, very careful, Christian, when you take a verse that feels really, really good, and we do this all the time. We take a verse and we pull it out, and we make it a completely different meaning than what God intended for it. God says, be amazed and astounded. Bad trouble is on the horizon. As Credence Clearwater Revival said, bad moon horizon. This isn't going to be good. Trouble and turmoil and tribulation is on its way. And so we need to recognize there's context to it. God says you're going to be astounded. You're going to be amazed. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. I'm going to answer your prayer. Good news, bad news. I'm not going to answer it the way you want it to be answered. And what a great application for us this morning. Such a great application because we pray and we pray and we pray. And then God answers our prayer. I wonder in that moment if Habakkuk was like, you heard, you answered the phone. I've been calling and you answered. And he says, listen, I'm going to do something awesome. I'm going to do something amazing. And and if you will, just picture with me that Habakkuk's getting this via his cell phone. Yeah, yeah, astounded, I'm with you. Uh, Amazed, oh yeah, oh, the good old days are coming back. I love you, God, the Chaldean, the who? The Chaldeans, you're raising them up? Isn't that where Abraham came from to become an Israelite? The Chaldeans, that nasty and ruthless and hideous people? God, you got the wrong number. I think you messed up your signals. Why would you, a good God who has promised the nation of Israel your precious promises and covenants, now be raising up one of our chief enemies to discipline us? I just told you, God, how frustrated I am about the violence, how disappointed I am in the uh, disobedience, the treachery, the sabotage, the sin. How disappointed I am that the law has become perverted. And God, you need to do a revival in our land. God, you need to change us. You need to make us more like you. And how are you going to do that? By bringing a more treacherous, a more sinful, a more ungodly group of people to exercise your discipline upon us. That makes zero sense. Christian, remember this morning that sometimes... God answers your prayer the exact opposite way that you thought He was going to. And in that moment, we have a choice to make. Either obey Him and worship Him, or say, that's not my kind of God. We do that a lot, don't we? If that's how God is, I want nothing to do with Him. Or we make up God and His words into a God of our own making and desires. Here's why we've got to be people of the Word. This is God speaking. And this is God's answer to his prophet. He says, I'm going to do something that's going to amaze you, it's going to astound you, and it's going to be the exact opposite of what you're looking for. Now, why is Habakkuk crying? Why is he complaining? Notice a couple things. I want to move through this quickly for those that weren't with us this last week. What we see in our text is that uh, what we learn is the bad news is life is filled with anguish and pain. Life is filled with anguish and pain. We talked about this last time, but it's important to go back to it. The first four verses, Habakkuk is crying. He's crying out to God. Violence, destruction, treachery, it marks culture. And where does this all stuff this come from? It comes from man's 
troubles and emergencies. He says he cries out for help. Can I remind you that we don't cry out for help when there's thousands of dollars in the bank account, right? We cry when there's zero or negative. We don't cry for help when the cars are running great. We cry for help when we're stranded on the side of a road. We don't cry when we're current on the mortgage. We cry for help when we're behind on the mortgage. We don't cry when the marriage is good. We cry when the marriage is falling apart. We don't cry when we have a job. We cry when we don't have a job. We don't cry when our nation is in order and law is overseeing the day. We cry when civil war breaks out. We don't cry for help when we're healthy. We cry when a plague like Ebola comes and ravishes our land. Habakkuk is crying because his life is filled with troubles and emergencies. And so why is he crying? Well, he's crying to God because he recognizes that he can't fix his problem. The problem's way too big for him. And the second thing that he cries about is that evil is triumphing. He sees the triumphing of evil. And so he's languishing. He's struggling. He's being obedient, and it only allows him to fall farther and farther behind. The faithful remnant are outnumbered. Notice in the text, they outnumber, they surround, the righteous are surrounded by the unrighteous or the wicked. What it literally means there is that the righteous are outnumbered by the pagans. I don't need to see a show of hands, but how many of you tomorrow morning are going to go to a workplace where you are outnumbered as a Christian? Where treachery and sabotage rule the day. Where dog-eat-dog is the name of the game. Though you share a common office space, your adversaries for that account or that promotion. And, And because of it, the Word of God, the law of God doesn't rule the day. But social Darwinism does. Only the powerful will survive. So he turns his attention. He says, justice is being perverted. We've got all these troubles and emergencies. I cry out to help. And who does he cry to? The Lord. Why is he crying to the Lord? Because of what I would like to say, and you're going to learn hooked on phonics work for me. A tepid, a tepid, that's a great word. That's like 500 word score, right? A tepid response from God. God's not engaged. What it means is lackluster. It's not happening. It doesn't seem to be doing much. And God seemingly is absent off of His throne, not worried about the circumstances of life. He's distant. He really doesn't care. And and Habakkuk is like, where are you, God? You seem so distant. I feel so isolated. I don't have anybody to turn to. I'm turning to you, but all I hear is crickets. God, will you hear me? How long will you allow this? Lord, I look at injustice. I see iniquity. Lord, how can you idly, lazily, disconnectedly, if you will, look at this sin and not do something? You call yourself a holy God. How then can you allow yourself to see this sin and allow it to go on? That's where we were at two weeks ago. Now here's the thing that I want to bring back up. A little bit and and nuance a little more what are we to do in those circumstances when these things are taking place when the evil are triumphing over the pagan seemingly the wicked prosper while the obedient fall farther and farther behind and it seems like God is far off what are we to do number one write this down don't accuse God don't accuse God 
during that struggle, don't shake your fist at God and say, God, are you dumb? God, are you missing it? God, don't you care? Speaking against his character like that. You see, Habakkuk is giving what many would call a complaint. And it was asked of me two weeks ago, and I wanted to, you know, I want you to know when you talk to me and ask me questions, I want to teach you and, and I want to answer your questions. A couple people came up to me and said, listen, I thought we weren't supposed to complain in the Bible. I love that. Our people are smart, biblically savvy people. They use the Bible to confound the pastor, okay? Tim, you talked about complaining, but are we told not to do all things without grumbling or complaining? And we have in our black and white here in the Bible, Habakkuk complaining. Even my heading says Habakkuk's complaint. So what are we to do with that? I want you to understand that there are two sides of this coin. One is a righteous and godly one. One is a uh, sinful one. And we've got to be careful when we don't understand what God's doing or God seems distant. Don't accuse God by complaining. So notice what we do. We need to lament. Write that word down somewhere. Lament. It's a biblical word, and it's kind of like complaining, but it's very different because of the heart that it comes from. Notice, uh, I got this from an author named Ann Voskamp. She wrote, lament is a cry of belief in a good God, a God who has an ear to our hearts, a God who transforms the ugly into beauty. Leave it there for a second. Go back. Go back. Don't go too far. Go on back there. Now, this is what Habakkuk is doing. He's crying out in honesty, and his belief isn't you're a bad God. His belief is you're a good God. God, I know you're concerned about these things. God, I know that you can't look at evil and allow evil to go. But God, what I'm wanting to do is join you in the struggle against evil, join you in the heart cry against evil, because I know you're a God who transforms the ugly things, the wicked things, into righteous things. That's lament. What we do often is complain. Complain, go ahead and flip the slide there for me. Complaint is the bitter howl of unbelief in a benevolent God in this moment. It's a distrust in His love. The heartbeat, if you will, of the Father's heart. Now, when we complain, God ang- God's anger kindles hot. When the essence of our complaint implies that we doubt His love, and how do we doubt His love? As we rub our forehead and shake our head. I can't believe this is happening to me. Why would God allow this thing to happen? I just, I don't get it. God says He'd love me. God says He works out all things for the good. And I, I just don't get, why is my neighbor have it so good and, and I have it so hard? That's complaint. That's not lament. And brothers and sisters, some of us want to use Habakkuk as an example and say, well, I can complain to God. I can shake my fist at God. And Habakkuk is sitting there joining in his lament with God. Be lamenters of our situation, not complainers. Go on, I, I think I've got one more slide. True lament is the bold faith that trusts God's perfect love enough to feel and cry authentically. It's not about denying our feelings. Habakkuk doesn't do that. But he expresses them in the confidence that our God hears and will act in a perfectly loving way. That's what we need to do in our complaints. 
God, you're a good God. God, I don't understand why you're doing this, but I am so open-handed. I'm not going to accuse you. I'm going to believe and trust that you do all things well. Don't accuse God. Number two, don't act, don't act independently of God. Habakkuk goes to God. He doesn't start a new ministry outside of God. Notice he doesn't start a political action committee. He doesn't find uh, a politician that can rally the troops in his cause and say, I'm going to do that. He doesn't raise all kinds of money to create a, uh, some sort of community organizing center where he can rally the people uh, to obey apart from God. No, he, he does not act independently of God. He seeks to act in step with God. How many of us in our emergencies and troubles try to address that situation through our bank accounts, through our connections, through our sweet thinking and quick wisdom from the human heart? And how rare is it that when an emergency or trouble comes our way, that we stop, we get on our knees and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, what are you calling me to? Don't act independently of God. And also don't abandon your faith. How sad is it that when we come to times of trial and trouble, in those moments, instead of persevering, we run away. Instead of fighting the fight of faith, we choose flight. And we run. And we give up. We give up on God. We give up on the church. We give up on other believers. We say, you know what? I ran into this obstacle here, and so I'm going to give up all of it. And I'm going to walk away. Habakkuk doesn't do that. We watched pictures this last week in the weekend pictures of uh, of our kids at Great America. And they were going to be flung at high rates of speed, high into the air, upside down, left and right, and all of that. Let me tell you, when I get on those things, it's very rare, I cry like a little newborn baby. I hate that stuff. That's trouble and emergency in the life of your pastor. And I hold on with dear life. I hold on to the very apparatus that promises to save me. And then my lunatic 14-year-old son's got his arms in the air. Isn't this great? Woo! And I'm holding on. Lord, forgive him, for he know not what he does. Listen, when trials and tribulation comes, God has purposed for you not to be a fool and have your hands up in the air with the chance that you might fall out. What He's called you to do is to grab a hold of Him. Remember, Habakkuk's name means embracer, grabber, hugger of God. And so grab a hold of Him. Don't abandon your faith. So when life is filled with the troubles and The anguish that we face each and every day, the bad news is it's going to happen. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. You're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulation. So God, what's the good news? If that's the bad news, what's the good news? Notice the good news is God is faithful to answer our prayers. He's faithful to answer our prayers. So the prophet cries out in honesty and pain, and lo and behold, the Lord speaks. He answers the prayer. 
It is a prophecy, if you will, of what the writer of Hebrews is going to say in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Habakkuk is in a place of need. He goes to God in confidence, and God answers his prayer. But the answer to Habakkuk's prayer isn't exactly what he's looking for. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He was praying for revival. He was praying for mercy. He was praying that the just, or the unjust, would be punished and the just would have the um, blessing of God. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring havoc upon the entire nation, the faithful and the unfaithful. They're all going to experience trouble and tribulation. That's the bad news. The bad news is that God's answer is more bad news. As Christians, we must recognize that sometimes when God says, I've got good news and bad news, the, the bad news is, is life is hard, and the good news is life's going to get harder. And you say, how can that be good news? The reason why is because God has spoken to us that even in His bad news, He's with us. Even in His bad news, He's faithful. And we need to recognize this morning that sometimes God's no or bad answer to our prayer, if you will, hard answer to our prayer, is the best news we could get. Now why in the world would we believe that? Because there are four things I want you to see in this, in this text of bad news from verses 5 through 11. We see four things in this bad, if you will, humanly speaking, answer to prayer. The first one is, when we look... We recognize God's on the move. He's always on the move. And isn't that one of Habakkuk's prayers? God, how can you sit idly by and not do something? How can you idly look at wrong? And Habakkuk laments that. And what does God say? God says, I'm doing a work in verse 5. That doing that phrase there if you underline or circle that's a present tense phrase meaning it's happening right now as i speak habakkuk i am working out my plan it's moving forward step by step moment by moment my plan is unfolding just as i planned it now that helps habakkuk and it helps us recognize when we think god's not doing anything He's doing something. Now, I want you to know what he's doing. Notice he says, I'm doing a work. Work. That word work in the Hebrew literally means work. Okay? All you Bible scholars out there, they nailed this one. Tomorrow you will be doing a work. Now, here's the crazy thing. It should knock your socks off. You go to your workplace and you've got emails to return. You've got phone calls to return. You've got sales calls to make. You've got deals to close on. Maybe you're working and, and producing something and you're in the process of that production. And, and you can, at the end of the day, once the job is all done, you can say, I finished my work. The work is done. I've accomplished it. And then the great thing about work is that there's more the next day for you. And here's the thing. God as well is working. But the difference is, he's not returning sales calls or, or, or running reports or making sure that the new uh, software that uh, your company is using is up to snuff. No, what God's work is, is he's upholding the cosmos. He's raising up empires and he's 
bringing other empires down. He's seeing to it that every one of his seven billion inhabitants have life and breath and all that they need. He makes sure that the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field all have everything that they need. Remember, God is the one who sees the birds and feeds them and clothes the lilies of the field. God makes sure that the far-flung celestial bodies that we haven't even seen with our greatest of telescopes stands in orbit just at the right spots. God is upholding the universe. He's raising up kingdoms. He's knocking other ones down. And here's the thing. It is all happening in perfect precision. Let me remind you about your work. Nothing happens with perfect provision, right? And precision. That's why you have calls. That's why you got to follow up with emails. That's why you got to, hey, the order didn't come in or this is going to be delayed and all of that. God doesn't say, oops, sorry, I'm a little delayed. We didn't wake up at, uh, you know, three in the afternoon because God said, I forgot to set the sun. Wake up, everybody. We didn't wake up going, "Ah, oh, I forgot to turn the oxygen on. With perfect precision, God is doing His work. And He says to Habakkuk, I am on the move. And the way that you can know that I'm on the move is look amongst the nations. Very important. When we are struggling with God's answer, and I've got to get moving here, I'm running out of time. When we look at, at our problem, we look at our problem. And we say, God, you're not moving in, our, in, in my situation. And what God says is, look up. Look amongst the nations. Right now in America, we're struggling, it would seem. People are more disappointed with us as a country and all the fighting and bickering that's going on. And and I watch the decline of the church happen in my nation. But then I go to a banquet like last night for Ulicaf, and I hear what our brothers and sisters in Liberia are doing. I say, God is on the move. God's doing some great things. And I may not like what I see here, but if I look to the nations, China and India, Liberia, Africa, if I look to the nations, I will be amazed at what God is doing. But herein lies the problem. God's way, God's always on the move, but notice God's ways are mysterious. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are from northern Iraq. They're the kissing cousins of the bald and beautiful and buff Assyrians. I'm an Assyrian. 50% of my blood is Assyrian. We're bald, beautiful, and buff. Amen? The Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're all kissing cousins and kissing empires, if you will. And they're nasty people back in the day. And God uses these people. And and sometimes we wonder, God, why are you using them? God, why are you using evil to fix the... Faithful remnants. God, why are you allowing the evil to be used in our life? Wouldn't it be far easier just to win us with honey and sweet things? Why do you bring the hard things into our lives? Listen, this issue of a good God in an evil world is what theologians call theodicy. And if you really want to study it, there's some great articles and great books that have been written, volumes of books, speaking to this issue of theodicy. How does a good God allow and use great evil in the world? And here's what I would say, just as a Cliff Notes version, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know my God does all things well. 
I do know that my God says He promises to make all things come together for the good of those who He loves and called according to His purposes. And that's good enough for me. And so when evil befalls us, I, like Job, say God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we recognize God's ways are mysterious. Isaiah said His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are greater than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God is on a completely different plane than we are. His degrees far advance us. Notice next, He's mysterious. Notice we can misunderstand these things. We can misunderstand them. Boy, can I just tell you, God seems to revel in how awesome the Chaldeans are. Man, they're fast, they're ferocious, they move, they're smart, they can just conquer nations, they laugh at any opposition. God's like, can you see how great these guys are? And here's why I think God does that. Because it is God who is the power behind them. He says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm empowering them. I'm giving them the victory. I'm allowing them to have this opportunity. And God's saying, you want to know how powerful the Chaldeans are? They're powerful, but listen, they're nothing without me. Have you ever thought that your enemies are nothing without God? So go to God. Don't fight your enemies. Understand why God is allowing your enemies to do the things that He does. And you're going to learn God's ways are mysterious and sometimes they're misunderstood. When Amanda was diagnosed with cancer, I did not understand that. She was 40 years old. She's a faithful, faithful woman. You have a pagan as a pastor, but you have a godly pastor's wife. And I'm like, why didn't you strike me with it? I'm the sinful one. She's faithful. Never a bad word is said from her. Never is a bad thought thought from her. She's a wonderful woman. Why would you strike her with this? Strike me. I've got sin. I've got a problem. And I misunderstood. And I began to wonder, God, are you angry with me? God, are you angry with us as a family? God, have we not done enough? We misunderstand the ways of God because God's ways are mysterious. But if we stand back a little bit and give some time, we'll see what God's ways are. Habakkuk was going to learn in some time, some years, some decades, that God's plans, listen, are always moral. They're always moral. No matter what God brings our way, no matter what He allows to befall us, remember that He could have stopped it. He could have stopped it. You see, one of the things that I always struggle with is we, we want to disconnect God from evil. And we should in the sense that God never does evil. But God uses evil. And the reason what we will do, listen very carefully, when you start separating say, well, God didn't allow that to happen. That happened on its own. What you have done is you have neutered God from being God. Because you're saying something happened in His creation that He couldn't have stopped. Brothers and sisters, not only could He have stopped it, but He gave His stamp of approval to allow it into existence. There is not one stray molecule in the entire universe that does not get its call from God Himself. Everything goes by God's desk. Because if it doesn't, then evil is God. God our Father isn't. So be careful, because God's ways are always moral. We may not like them, we may misunderstand them, they may seem mysterious to us. And what we're going to learn is Habakkuk, he's going to praise God. You have two choices. Job's wife said, Job, curse God and die. Or you can bless the name of the Lord. 
Habakkuk chooses that. So what do we do? Let's close this out. What do we do with this? Knowing that God is faithful to answer our prayers and we see how he's doing it, what do we walk away from? Give me two minutes and we're out of here. Number one, pray more. Pray more. We have just read with our own eyes that a man got on his knees, he prayed, and what did God do? Help me out. He answered. Thank you for the confidence. He answered. If God answers our prayers, then surely the people of God should pray more. Amen? We need to pray. And we need to pray more. If we want to see a change in our church, we need to pray. If we want to see a change in our family, we need to pray. If we want to see it in our country, we need to pray. If we want to see it in the world, we need to pray. And we need to pray more than ever before. Because God is faithful. Now, we need to know that God always doesn't, God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want. But we need to pray. Number two. Not only do we need to pray, but we need to change our perspective. Stop looking at your circumstances through your lens. Let me tell you right now, my lens and your lens are always faulty. Always faulty. We don't get it. We don't understand it. We're so involved in the situation, we can't distinguish the forest from the trees. So back up. And by the way, write this down. You need to be patient, so I'll just work this in there. Back up. Give it enough time, and you'll start to see it. God will reveal it. Listen, in 1990, my older brother was killed in a car accident. I was 14 years old. I have no idea. My, my goodness, the kid was full of life. He was serving the Lord. He was doing great ministry as a young man. He was changing his public school for Jesus Christ. And in that moment, God, God uh, uh, takes him out. That makes no sense. I watched my parents cry and wail and weep. It made no sense. My parents served and honored God in all that they did. The only problem they had was just a bad second-born son. And I didn't get it. But now, 27 years later, it's crystal clear. God's ways are always right. Do I miss my brother? Yes. Humanly speaking, would it for me been far better to have him here? I guess. But I can tell you right now, my family would not be where they are today, serving where they are serving, if God didn't allow that mysterious, misunderstood thing to take place. So back up. Give time for God to give the answer. I wrote this down, and I'll close in prayer. I would far rather have bad news from God than any amount of good news from men. Can you say that this morning? I'd rather get the bad news from God than to get good news from men. Let's take these hard words, these sometimes misunderstood words, take them to heart as sensible people work through them by the Holy Spirit, 